0: We've all seen depictions of the Vikings. My favorite is the Netflix series, The Last Kingdom, but that's Hollywood. The real truth about the Norse culture and the Viking culture, well, it requires talking to an expert. And today we have Kedrick Olson, an expert not only on Viking history, Norse history, but also the mysticism that underpins a lot of their beliefs. And it was really a mind-blowing, eye-opening conversation, and I can't wait to share it with y'all. This episode is brought to you by the new Fit for Service Academy app. Go to the App Store and download Fit for Service Academy. It's brought to you by The Cold Plunge, which is my badass new cold plunge, thecoldplunge.com, and also on it, onnit.com slash Aubrey. When you get to the root of most of the mystical teachings of the world, they all point to similar things, whether that's the study of Rumi or whether that's the study of Gnosticism or any Christian mysticism or just your own experiential spiritual journey that I've been on with the plants and with other teachers, and you find the similarities and you find the synchronicities and you find that the different ways that people describe the interaction of self to mystery... There's a lot of things that can help expand your understanding and add different language, different metaphors, and different stories to strengthen what you internally can believe is true. And this has absolutely been the case with everything that we discuss here on this podcast with Kedrick Olson, who has a robust spiritual practice on his own that also ties in deeply to some of the mystical Norse roots, everything from the study of runes the study of toning and sound and all of the different stories that were part of this spiritual tradition. So I can't wait to share this podcast with you. It's something that most of us, myself included, had no idea about before actually learning from and talking to Kedrick. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. Our first sponsor is Fit for Service Academy. Now, what the hell is that? You've heard me talk about the Fit for Service Fellowship probably a lot on the podcast and in some ad reads. Fit for Service is a group of people that have come together to figure out how to get themselves to a state where they're capable of reaching their potential of serving the world in the best way possible, knowing and realizing that they are a part of that world and that it starts with the self. Unless we are ready and fit to serve, we can't serve anybody, not our family, not ourselves, not the world at large. But the challenge with the Fit for Service Fellowship is that it's only 150 people. We respect the Dunbar's number in the fellowship. So there's a scalability issue. How do we bring some of this community, some of these life-changing experiences of connecting with people in a vulnerable place where you can share anything and you're gonna have somebody else there who's going to receive you and going to see you. So how do we do that? Well, the solution was to create an app, an iOS ready, available on all phone platforms that you can join and then become a part of the digital virtual community. We have a ton of guided meditations, breath works, ecstatic dances that are all loaded up on there, a bunch of content that we shot during Fit for Service. And of course, all of the Fit for Service fellowship members and everybody else who is joining to try and create a movement, like a legitimate worldwide movement where people really care about tribe in a time where everybody's saying, isolate, isolate, stay alone. We're saying, no, no, no. We need to come together as a community now more than ever. And this is an opportunity. So you can check it out in your app store, Fit for Service Academy. It's free for the first month. So just check it out, see if you like it. And if you like it, which I know that you will, then I'm excited to welcome you to part of this community. So once again, just go to your app store and type in fit for service academy or go to aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service academy. I'll see you on the inside. So as any of you who have read my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, know the cold plunge or cold shower practice is essential for my human optimization, really foundation. It's a way that I can optimize to level up both my physical body with the stress response, with the cortisol response, with the optimization of your hormone regulation that can happen while you dive and submerge into the cold. But it's also a way for me to practice mental override, for me to get myself To push past that initial resistance says, ah, it's too cold. I don't want to get in. And then you get in, and all the benefits start to accrue. And I become a different person at the end of the cold plunge than I was at the beginning of the cold plunge. And every successive time that I do it, I just get a little bit better in all of those categories. So one of the times that I was posting this on Instagram, one of the people watching was the cold plunge that makes the absolute most elegant and best cold plunge I've seen on the market. And I was busy diving into my converted chest freezer and they were like, hey, we got a solution that's way better. Let us show you what this thing is all about. And I'm so glad that they did. Because not only is this tub the most aesthetically pleasing tub I've seen, it has all of the built-in cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you a stable temperature with circulating water. In a sexy ass tub. And it's also way cheaper than a lot of the other options out there, some of which still use ice. Like you have to import ice and get more ice and dump it in. And that's cool. It's fun to be kind of floating around in the ice. But this is the elegant solution that actually has everything comprehensively built in. And it's easy to get set up. You just fill it up with a hose and you can use a filter on your hose as well if you want to filter out anything that's in the tap water. And you just have a pristine cold plunge tub that looks great and is available 24 7 for your cold plunge practice so i encourage you guys to check it out not only for the benefits to your mitochondria and all the physical benefits but also the benefits to your mind for that willingness to push past any resistance that you might have train that mental override train that willpower and just check out their tub if you're able to this is one of the biggest things that i can recommend to really level up your practice across. All levels so go to thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp use the code amp for hundred eleven dollars off and just check it out thecoldplunge.com slash pages slash amp use the code amp for hundred eleven dollars off and share it when you dive in when you get in there share your experience we'll talk about it I'll be diving in so let's do this together let's all get a little bit better together. It's a new year and this year is all you and Onnit is here to help support you in every way possible. You've heard me talk about the Onnit 6 programs which are phenomenal but sometimes you just want a quicker workout. You just want to get in, get out in 30 minutes and make sure that you're moving in the right way, that you're challenging yourself in the right way. So we have a solution. It's called Onnit in 30. So 10 workouts for under 10 bucks and they're all incredible workouts these are some of the most popular classes we offer at on a gym the 30 minute express class people go in on their lunch breaks people go in and you get a full workout with a warm-up with a cool down with everything that you need to support your body make sure you stay healthy strong and happy as Wim Hof would like to say so, check it out. On It in 30 is now available. There's routines for kettlebells, body weight, and mobility at 30 minutes or less. It's streamed online on demand, so you can train anywhere, anytime. And it's training for your whole body and for every experience level. Go to slash Aubrey or check out onitcom onit in 30 to go right there. And now, an uninterrupted podcast with Kadric Olson. Kedrick Olson. It's so good to be sitting down here with you, man. I have so much to dive into. I'm fucking fired up about this podcast.
1: Hey, man. I'm excited about it, too. This is going to be
0: awesome. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Of course. All right. So what I first want to get into is the historical understanding that people have of the Norse people, of the Vikings, has been very much Hollywoodized and, and portrayed in a way, actually even before Hollywood, and I think you've talked about this before, how you know the historians that are writing things are not necessarily always the winners sometimes they're the losers sometimes it's a mix of of judgments and aspersions and different things that happen so give us a real picture from a from a historical standpoint of what the norse people what the viking people were actually like before we actually go into the you know spirituality and mythology that you've been able to bring forward absolutely
1: for the time period they really weren't that much different from any of the other cultures that were around them, but there were two major influences that brought them to the rest of the world. We can think of it as the Little Ice Age, that really encapsulated and closed in the Scandinavian countries. Their resources became sparse, very limited, and what, they had what to, time
0: period are we talking about here?
1: Oh, we're talking about the late 900s, early 1000s. Okay, yeah, that was the start of the Viking Age, and because they're limited, the resources were very limited they needed to go expanding throughout the rest of the world to find out what they could do to bolster their, their, their community, their lifestyle, basically. And the second influencing factor is they had the ability to build ships that only took a few inches of water when they were fully loaded that enabled them to sail across the oceans or go through rivers, basically unseen unheard. And they were very quick. You could almost think of the Viking boat at the time period was the stealth bomber of their age, or even you know, what we have higher technology that we don't even know about yet. But it was advanced. And because they were swift, they were able to get in and out. They did do raids. They absolutely did raids. But history shows us that they were more about exploring. They were more about making trades and accommodating with other people. But there was the Lindisfarne raid upon the monastery of Lindisfarne. And I can't exactly remember the date of it other than it was an Easter Sunday. And when they raided this monastery, there were the peaceful monks that really didn't put up much of a fight. And yes, the Vikings came in, took all of the silver, the gold, all of the precious metals, Now, history records this as a vicious attack that these savage beasts came in and desecrated the the church and the temple on a holy day of all holy days. Therefore, God must be angry with us. And these monks had to write back to the home office something about why they lost all of their treasures. So, Mm. of course, they played up the story about how vicious and awful and killing and mean that these Vikings were, which we don't know if that was the actual case or not. But as history tends to be, We get exaggerated tales throughout history and that mythos sort of, sort of perpetuated. There are fun little segments that we hear, like there is an English author wrote about the Danes, how awful they were, that they bathed regularly, that they combed their hair (laughs) in order to lure our women away from us. And that tells us, really, is this what they were like? When we look at other cultures like Ibn Fadlan, was a Muslim in the Slavic countries, he completely has a different picture of these people that, yes, they tended to be a bit brutish. They tended to be a little bit more forthright and bold and direct, but they also seem to be really well-educated. They seem to be very into their culture. They seem to be, strangely enough, compassionate. And the Vikings that we see on TV, you know, with the shaved heads, all dirty and grubby and mangy looking and awful doesn't hold up to history. They love to wear silks. They love to wear glass beads. They would yes, file their teeth so that the teeth look sharp, but they maintained hygiene to a higher standard than the rest of Europe. And if we were to look at a Viking compared to what we think of, they would have looked like a dandy, but believe me, they didn't fight. They didn't have the kind (laughs) of mentality as a dandy. They just would have looked that way because they liked the finery.
0: Mm. I think it, it, It speaks to the bias that a lot of us have and that a warrior is supposed to be only only brutal and only rough and only all of these aspects but it's missing the reality that permeated all of history like we know socrates and it'll be depicted as this kind of impish philosopher who's just thinking all the time but then you read the stories of his accounts of rescuing alcibiades with incredible bravery diving in front of him with his shield until the phalanx could come come back and like regain the men and he was a An incredible warrior, but we don't like that because it doesn't fit our understanding, our narrative of the scholar named Socrates or you know, Musashi. We love talking about all of the men that he slayed in hand-to-hand combat. Less do we love talking about what an amazing artist he was in calligraphy and what an amazing writer he was. It's just these are kind of like the things that don't make sense for us in our narrative. And I think there's actually a a strong and beautiful movement that's going on to reclaim. The entire birthright of a human being which is all of the things you don't have to be one archetype you can be all of them and why not you know and it seems like the norse people have been categorized in that you know brutal viking warrior archetype but had all of the other aspects of them really ignored because of our bias towards that that narrative that construct we have
1: you're absolutely correct even the sagas will tell us that a good man Is capable of protecting his home is capable of wielding a sword or an axe in combat but he also must be able to compose poetry and so what we see at this time period if we really look at the history we find that for this time period these were some of the most educated well-read people on the planet by their own writings and by other cultures going back and saying wow you know these people were very very influential In literature, they wrote down a lot of stuff, especially the Icelanders and the Danes. But this aspect gets lost. And when we get to the side where I look at the mysticism and the magic, that was actually a very well-developed esoteric system that overtly got lost. But if you can get into the translations with a mystical mindset and pick apart some of the words and the phrasings and the things that are hidden in the lore, you find out that their mysticism was on par for western esotericism throughout the mainland europe at that time period so they were a pretty advanced culture that like we were saying at the beginning the uh sore losers got to write the history in this case
0: well and of course then the the historians that were probably reading they had the catholic bias right i mean and so anything that was not the catholic dogma was paganism was you know they were heretics it was all nonsense so they there was not even an effort to understand it wasn't like ah this is this is an interesting mystical truth that reminds me of the gnostics of the no that's not what the catholic church did at all and so you know you see the multiple different periods of bias and then also i have to understand the norse people were not homogenous surely there was the brutal you know types of people and surely there were the you know the peaceful types of people they were like maybe we can make improvements in farming instead of raiding and then there's the other people like fuck it we're just gonna raid you know there's not gonna be one you know one permeating thing just like there's not an american culture or any culture there's a whole spectrum of behavior but we often you know categorize people in as one nature i, I think we did that with the native americans for a while they were all you know brutal savages that were scalping everybody and then perhaps now it's actually flipped and it's like no they were always the peaceful nobles noble you know earth-based spiritual warriors okay yeah they were probably both you know they probably ferociously defended themselves and some out of anger were vicious but also peaceful and spiritual and beautiful in all the ways and and i think we have to understand that all of these ways that we categorize things that have happened in the past are just rife with our own bias and uh and and this is what's great to get in with somebody who's really discarded all of that bias and like all right let's really look at what this was all about and go deeper so just glad to be able to dive into this one because it's not something that i would have instinctively thought of doing um, so just grateful that you were, you know, took the initiative to go and do it.
1: Thank you. And you're absolutely right. Any conquering culture that comes in tends to demonize the in indigenous cultures, no matter who they are. In the same way was the Catholic going into Scandinavia, the Catholics going into the Celtic and the Gallic territory, and then Europeans coming into Native America. they tend to demonize those cultures so that it when they dehumanize these people it makes it easier to take their land to overtake their culture and then when everything starts settling in then you lose that conquering mindset and you can take a deeper look and go oh yeah these were people the entire time that had complex cultures that we ignored at one time and now it's time for us to go oops sorry let's go back and take a look at that
0: right right so let me just see if i understand um you know who the norse people were so obviously you know we commonly call them vikings but that's not necessarily completely accurate. And then so where where was the boundaries? There was the Germanic tribes, and I'm sure there was some some crossover. Where do you kind of loosely, and it's probably hard because there's probably a lot of mingling of the different peoples, but where do you loosely, you know, when you talk about the tribes that you would call the Norse people, you know, who actually followed the runes and who had this similar mythology that we're about to get into, you know, what were the peoples that uh, that, that encompassed?
1: In the mainland Europe, and the Germanic territories, we would think of these as the Teutons, the Teutonic people. They had a very similar religious practice and traditions as the Scandinavians. They just pronounced the words a little bit differently. Like in, in Scandinavia, we'd say Odin or Odin, but on the mainland, they would say Wotan or Wotan or Votan. Thor would be in Scandinavia. It's Donar to the Teutonic people then when you get up further into Scandinavia and even in the mainland, it is really very tribal. It's very different village to village, even country to country. One of the things I tend to talk about is if we look at midsummer, the rituals that would go on at midsummer, if you were in Iceland at midsummer, you would be doing rituals to the Norse god of Tyr, which deals with justice and discipline and structure, order, self-sacrifice for the greater good. If you were in Scandinavia, at midsummer, you would be doing a ritual to to uh, Odin so that you could go out to, sorry, Norway, you would be doing to Odin so you can go out for your raiding and trading on your boats. But in Sweden, it would be to Freyr for the fertility of the land and the abundance. But it's the same deities uh, that are in the Norse pantheon. They just look at them in different ways for different purposes. And what are the best things when it comes to looking at runes? There was really no standardization of spelling, even there are slight variations in runes. And those people who have PhDs in runology, it's actually an accredited field to study runes, they can look at the thousands of runestones that are all over Scandinavia and throughout Europe. Look at what runes were used, what spellings were used, and tell us a, just approximately a, what time period that stone was carved and what part of Scandinavia it came from, just by the slight derivations in the use of runes on that. So it's really fascinating. And what you're saying about Vikings, the word Vikingar is the, the proper pronunciation of it. When it came into use in the, the Viking age it really meant people who were of the wick, the Strait of the land, who basically people who were born on water, lived on water. You could think of these as the water people is really what that means. Vic is the wick, the Strait. ing means born of. Now, when the lore got to the 1300s, when it started being written down by the Christians that were preserving some of the old literature, the old ways, the oral stories, when you would see a Viking in that literature in the sagas, it was always a despicable, disgraceful person that died a horrific, awful death because they were dishonorable. And it wasn't really until we get to the early 1900s, early 20th century, when we had a revival, like a, a romanticization of the Viking period, that the word Viking came to mean this warrior kind of guy. At one point, it was just a person who went off rating and trading. It was like a part-time summer job. Summer was over. You came back home and you dealt with a the winter. Then it became a despot, and then suddenly it was romanticized into what we see today.
0: Mm. What do you think was the What do you think was the reasoning for that? Was it these just the subtle emasculation of the masculine that's kind of that's kind of come to come to fruition in in, in modern ages where we've kind of lost touch with our our own warrior roots and of course there's the dark warrior and then there's the sacred warrior and you know it's important to make the distinction between that but it seems like there's in in many ways for many people has been kind of suppression of that very uh, the very primal aspect of the warrior and so do you think it seems to me that the viking is archetypically representative of that you know primal energy that would you know that would actually symbolize what a warrior could be in certain aspects, at least that primal drive of a warrior. Absolutely. And that is what
1: we're seeing in the modern, modern Norse revival. We're seeing a lot of men who may be displaced by society saying, well, men are all toxic and men are all awful and horrible. And then they rebel against that one. You know, they're like us, they go to the gym, they lift the weights, they get themselves pumped up, and then they stand around a fire, raising a horn, doing the hail Odin, hail Odin, (laughs) ready to look for a fight, ready to go for that one. And this is where I like to come in when I talk about the warrior archetype, where I talk with uh, the Jungian concept of the warrior archetype, the immature versus the mature warrior, Mm. where the immature warrior is always there looking ready for a fight, always ready to prove himself, always looking for some sort of a conflict. You know, these are the guys w- with the cars and the trucks on the road that have to be the first one at the red light just because they're there. And then you pull up next to them and go, dude, come on. And then they're just blazing to the next red light where the mature warrior tends to be the most dangerous man in the room, but you never know it because he's well-trained. He's well-disciplined. He's well-armed with knowledge and practice. And if something were to go down, he's up at in an instant, shuts it down and it's over and you can really tell who the mature warrior is because he can do all that with just a look. He doesn't even have to move. He just gives a look to people and they're like, mm, Yeah, okay.
0: nothing, nothing to prove. And I've seen this time and time again. I'm you know, deeply involved in mixed martial arts, not personally as a fighter, but someone who's through my company and through a lot of the connections and contacts. Been, I've known both world champions, many world champions, and also many amateur fighters just starting out. And there's nothing more dangerous than an amateur fighter who desperately wants to prove how tough they are and there's nothing safer than a world champion who knows exactly how tough they are and it's just you know one is always itchy looking for a fight looking to prove themselves their ego is fragile and anything will cause them to want to prove that how how tough they are where someone else who's really proved it it takes a lot but if you really keep pushing and keep pushing they'll handle the situation and it's not just with fighters you know i've known you know, great operators who've been in the military. And, you know, there's the gung-ho just starting out, just enrolling, all fired up, you know. And then there's the ones who've been in service and been in the special forces and so sweet and so calm, you know, but but you know, like you can sense it if your instincts are in tune, like this is the person that you want on your side and you desperately do not want on the other side. Exactly. I see that in the Norse community as well,
1: you've got the fantasy role play warriors that want to do what they see on TV or what they see in the role-playing games. And they come in and I've got my ax and I'm ready to smash and smear blood all over my face. And then you've got the guys who are in the military who've actually seen some deep shit and they come back and they're like, I'm not talking about this. This is what we did over there. I've seen some of the worst things that a human being can do another person. we are not doing this." No, yeah. you can totally see the difference between the two.
0: Yeah yeah absolutely all right so let's talk about you know one of the unifying things that you mentioned is the pantheon of gods and this is something that's also been highly kind of romanticized and in, in our stories but when you actually get down into it you know what what did these gods represent what did they actually think of them did they really did they you know and their their attitude towards them as actual beings or whether there was a, a shift where they th- kind of thought of them as archetypes or whether they continued Believing them as actual beings, as actual entities, or or and, and what's your kind of so so basically a whole whole landscape of who the main gods were, and then the people's attitude in their in their deistic following of these gods and what they really thought of them.
1: Oh yeah, and it really covers the entire spectrum of it, and this is where I like to look at the difference between the esoteric working versus exoteric. So on the surface of exoteric, these are Beings, just like human beings that have superpowers, like Thor would be extra strong, extra brutal, ready to smash and destroy in the name of protection and keeping people safe, where Odin is this high god always manipulating and breaking oaths and treaties so that he can get what he wants and the ways that he wants to do. But when you get to the esoteric level, you really look at what's going on, like Odin, his name... Lee means the ruler of ecstasy, the ruler of inspiration. And when we look at it as an archetype, we could see in leadership roles, because Odin is the high God, he deals with nobility. He deals with, with the movement of resources and strategies, the really big picture of stuff and who's doing stuff at the high level, you know, the 10,000 foot, 10 mile level, he can see from that point of view, but with that position, it, there can be the compassion there can be the here's what really needs to do and what needs to happen but there is also that potential that the psychopathic potential that we see today that those people who are you know the super corporate executives that are manipulating the system they're gaming everybody and they're just trying to get power and money and control for themselves that is Another side of Odin. So there's the light side, the dark side mm. to Odin, but they saw this in the traits of people, of rulers, of kings. And the people who told the stories and told the lore really tried to emphasize that rulers and chieftains and kings needed to be haters of rings. And what they meant by that one is an arm ring was a form of currency, usually made of silver. And the king would take that ring off, break it, and use that as payment. So a hater of rings was somebody who was very generous. And through the archetype telling of Odin and the lore and other chieftains and gothis, as they're called, the the priestly class, the gothis, they tried to treat them as compassionate, leadership-type people, very high wisdom, very high knowledge, always concerned about learning more, gaining more knowledge and wisdom, and the direct application of that, In a generous way. So, this is why we see Odin that way. The same concept comes for Thor, as we talked about very brutish, very violent, very aggressive. And he will be the type of being that acts first, thinks later. And throughout the lore, he gets kind of made fun of because he does that. Like, for example, in one story, he wakes up in the morning to find out his hammer is missing. He blames Loki, the trickster god, for it. Loki goes out, finds it, finds a giant, and throughout the story, it eventually comes down to a little trick that they have to play by dressing Thor up as Freya, the goddess. He's in like a bridal dress with a veil over his he's totally cross-dressing. So you take this big brutish, you know, uber macho man and put him in a dress. <laughs> They're always making fun of him. But the thing about Thor is everything he does in the lore is protecting the gods and protecting humanity. So he was the one that was called on by the everyday man to protect their home, to protect their property, that if the storms were coming, threatening to blow away their crops and threatening to destroy their home, they would call upon Thor to calm the storms, which they personified as the giants, so that they could protect their property. When a baby was born, he was blessed with the sign of the Thor's hammer. When weddings took place, Thor's hammer was placed in the lap of the bride to bless the womb so that they had a fertile family. And when somebody died, the funeral pyre was blessed with Thor's hammer so that the person was protected as they traversed the other world. So what we have is these archetypes are not very simple, not very direct. They're very complex. And the deeper we get into the lore, we see that every one of the high gods from Odin, who is missing an eye, Thor, who is brutish and doesn't think too well, Tyr, who deals with discipline and self-sacrifice, is missing a hand. All of the high gods have some sort of a handicap that they have to deal. There is some sort of a limitation that they have to deal with. And unlike other traditions, these gods are not immortal. They die. They suffer. And the whole world is reborn again after all of these gods die. Now, some people see these as actual beings that they need to worship and venerate, which is fine. That's good. That's more of the exoteric practice. But what I want to teach people and how I'm trying to convince people to work with the deities is look at these archetypes within yourself Mm. and commit to sacred actions as, as actions sacred to these gods. For example... When you're walking through your home at night, making sure the doors are locked, the alarm is set, the windows are closed, that's a sacred action to Thor. You're protecting your home and family. When you're doing what you can to read, like listening to this podcast to boost your knowledge, you're doing a sacred action to Odin. When you're in the morning, every time you do your same hygiene routine, you know five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, you get your water, you do your bathroom stuff, you go do your workout, then you get your morning smoothie or your morning breakfast going, you do the same process over and over, that's a sacred action to tear. So th- this is kind of the archetype versus the actual being. You could see it either way, both are valid, but I think it's better to see it within yourself and live it for yourself.
0: Mm yeah absolutely what about the goddesses you know because these are you've just covered you just covered uh, tuesday wednesday and thursday by the way for the for people who don't realize tuesday being tears day wednesday or woden's day odin's day Indeed. thursday Thor's Day. so this is like this is deeply embedded in our culture too in our words in our language like this is a part of us you know whether we want to acknowledge it or or not and whether we realize it or not but then of course friday is uh is freya right isn't that isn't that her day? So there's the goddesses as well. And uh, I don't think people probably know nearly as much about the Norse goddesses as they do the gods.
1: This is one of the things that I love. There is a direct connection at the Proto-Indo-European language level between the Vedic cultures and the Norse cultures. And where this is going is the lore tells us that there are 12 Isir, 12 gods, and 12 Asunir, 12 goddesses. So there is this masculine, feminine aspect, just like we see in the Tantra aspects from the Vedic lore. And since we talked about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, let's talk about Friday. Freya. Freya and her brother Frere are both venerated as fertility forces. She is feminine fertility. She is the natural resources of the land. She is your compassion, your love, your sense of beauty. And she is also... Like I said, the fertility of the land. So if you were to take the seed, which is Frere, her brother, and plant that into the fertile soil, then you can have the crops to grow. But she is also your massive resource potential that you could tap into. Like if you were trying to start a new business, that's the capital. That's the audience you're trying to reach to your target market is Freya. It's not just a goddess, but it is this living resource that's out there. Now, some people will say that Friday could also be Frigg's day. And Frigg is the wife of Odin. One of the cool things that's in the lore is Odin. we're told that Odin is the most knowledgeable, one of the wisest of all the gods. But the only being in the entire universes that could best Odin is Frigg. (laughs) And Frigg is said to know everything but speak nothing of it and she cares for the home. She cares for the family. And so when you do set up a home, when you set up a hearth and you're making dinner and you're cleaning the house and you're making sure everything is in order, that's Frigg. One of the cool things about the Norse time period before the advent of Christianity is that men and women were on equal footing, women could go into battle. Women could carry a sword. There were women bear sarks, women berserkers, absolutely. And during the wedding ceremony, the man gave a woman a key. This is the key to the chest for their, their money, their resources. And she had rulership of everything in the home. The house was her territory. And yes, she could press legal cases. She could go to court battles called the thing and press legal cases. But when people came over to the home for hospitality, it was her right, whether or not to serve these people. And by serving, I don't mean she was a servant, she was subservient to anybody. That was her sacred action saying, here are my resources, gift to Freya. And I am thinking you are worthy, you are honorable to share this mead, to share this food, to share this home. And therefore it is my determination if I can give you hospitality or not. And the man didn't really have say over that. I mean, he could get angry, he could get upset, but it was ultimately the woman's right to say who was in that home and who ruled over everything. It's vastly different.
0: Vastly different. And this was a time, a time period in which, you know, the desert religions, which sprang up, were very patriarchal. And, you know, so, and very much so like enforced A vastly different landscape than what we would see now because what you're talking about is similar to you know after you know thousands of years you know women in in society have reclaimed these rights i mean women's suffrage we're talking 20th century stuff where women were allowed to vote and women were actually placed on equal footing women allowed in the military all of these things are recent advancements but for the norse culture they were riding along with this from the from the drop so what we might think of as primitive there you start looking and peeling back one single layer and you're like oh wait okay yeah they had they had this right <laughs> like way earlier than we did and, and earlier than a lot of cultures and and many indigenous cultures did you know there's uh it's you're hard pressed to find a deeply patriarchal indigenous culture that doesn't venerate you know the the sacred feminine um so it's it's cool to just start to start doing that initial and as we get more into the mysticism there'll be more of these layers peeled back where we're like oh yeah these vikings yeah great warriors for sure but let's look deeper and and really appreciate everything that they brought to the table and what they had in their society because it's it's robust
1: it it certainly is and what we see on tv just scratches a tiny little bit of surface of it and then exaggerates it into a completely erroneous direction
0: yeah totally all right so we have kind of a a good oh first of all you mentioned the berserkers so this is Hmm. something that i wanted to chat with you about because it ties into mysticism as i segue into that my understanding of the berserkers were that they would actually ingest the amanita muscaria mushroom the fly agaric mushroom which is a gaba agonist and it's a psychedelic it's i guess you could call it a psychedelic it's not a classic psychedelic like a psilocybin mushroom but it has you know a very like psychotropic effect on the brain and Mm -hmm. it's also very complicated how you actually ingest it you usually have to have the strongest person take it and then they pee and then that person (laughs) drinks it and there's a variety of different ways to prepare it you can also do it with like a slow baking but either way i'm sure they had their own methods um but is that is is that your understanding that it was the amanita muscaria mushroom that would bring them into this heightened state and get them ready to be the most fearless warriors they could be in battle?
1: Yeah. And when we get to the bear sarks, we're going to look at it in, let's say three different layers, the bear sarks, which the word means bear shirts, because they would wear the shirt of a bear, right? The bear skin is one form of this. The other is the wolf head there, the wolf hides. They would do the same, but wearing a wolf skin, their combat forms were different. The bear sarks would be, you know, your typical straight on heavy combat. But they were the ones that could go into it fearlessly, sometimes without any sort of clothes or any sort of shield. They would just have their axe or a sword and just go ferociously into battle. The wolfhaiden there would were more guerrilla warfare. They would hide in the woods and they would sneak around and do very subtle, sneaky attacks. And the wolfhaiden there, by the way, is part of the origin of werewolf lore: men that would become wolves. Oh wow. Now, both of these are shapeshifter traditions, which in the Norse term is called Hamaramer, which means shape, strong. And these are practices that are Odinic cults. They, they were worshipers of Odin, and they practiced Odinic rites. And you're absolutely right. There is some lore suggesting that they did take Flyagaric, the Amanita muscaria mushrooms, to get into that bearsark state. And really the best way to think of it is... A furious ecstatic state, which is where we go back to that term of Odin, his name Odin, the ruler of ecstasy, the ruler of madness, the ruler of of inspiration. The key word there is Other. And Other is a part of the soul that can express energy. The way I like to think of the Other is it not only gives the poetry, a poet, their ability to compose poet poetry, right? But the Bearsarks and the Warriors, their ability to go and go just like furious, if it's closed, they stop. And the energy produced by the other is just like the ki That whole rah! So you feel that furious, that ecstasy going. Now, it took a very special, unique kind of person to be able to be a bear sark. It couldn't be your average, ordinary warrior. And when we look at the descriptions of the men and even the women that were bear sarks, They had very problematic difficulties with temper. They were easily angered. They were easily upset. They had a hard time fitting into normal society. They just really were difficult to deal with and really hard to deal with at the social level. If we were to come into modern times and we were to analyze that, this could be somebody that has anger issues. This could be somebody with chronic PTSD that needs some sort of way to deal with it and vent with it. And in our modern culture, when we have men and even women that are like this, we segregate them off and say, oh, no, 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 you can't be here. We, we don't want you here. This is awful. This is terrible. You can't be a part of this. In that Old Norse society, they looked at this not as a handicap, not as a dysfunction but they looked at that as a strength and said, we need your ability. We need your prowess. And here's the training that you can get to accentuate those capabilities. Here is this mystical cult that you could be a part of to learn these techniques with this substance so that we can make best use of what we consider to be your talents rather than some sort of a deficiency. Completely Mm -hmm. different total view on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So knowing that the fly agaric mushroom was in use in at least many aspects of norse culture mm-hmm. um, and did this permeate did that particular sacrament do you think it permeated all of society like were there rites at, at midsummer you know where people because this is where we get the santa claus myth right like the jolly old rosy cheeked santa claus was someone who is you know in the in the red and white this is the fly agaric mushroom they would they would drink the mushrooms and hand toys to kids it didn't doesn't make you violent in by its necessity right it's a gab agonist it's going to alter your brain chemistry but it's it doesn't have to lead to any violence by any means certainly santa claus was the opposite of that so what did you, is there evidence that this was kind of a widespread sacrament or was it really reserved for almost like the mystery school of the Bearsarks? um and then so yeah where did the where did it go was it was it society-wide or was it was it pretty reserved
1: that I'm not entirely sure of, because I will tell you, some people will debate and argue that maybe it wasn't always the fly of Garrick, but it also could have been Liberty caps. They mm-hmm. were up there and it could have been heavy consumption of mugwort, which was a pretty prominent medicine sure. in that time period. And it could have been some use of all of that. Now, this is one of the things when it comes to tribal society, as we have different deities, different practices, different places Maybe in some places it was Fly Agaric. Maybe in some places it was Liberty Cap. Maybe in some places they found an endogenous way to reach those ecstatic states. Sure. Unfortunately, the lore and the history isn't totally clear for us. But some of the reconstructionists today that are putting some of the pieces together have certainly suggested all of those as possibilities.
0: Well, it makes it certainly makes sense that Liberty Caps would have been a part of at least some people in the culture, because as we now segue into Norse mysticism, I mean the mystical truths that they're arriving at are at the many of them are at the blistering edge of our understanding that we've gotten from many of the other great, you know, Eastern traditions and cultures of the past, but also, you know, the modern mystics that are exploring through this psychedelic renaissance and and the truths that we're discovering they seem to have access to so it becomes interesting you know and certainly there's you know new research and books like the immortality key which is a recent book talking about you know the ritualistic use of sacraments to expand you know kind of mystical awareness it's certainly a great tool for that something that i've been you know involved in and for 21 years now since my first vision quest at 18 but it seems like there is a a psychedelic influence but of course people can arrive at these things you know through uh through satori through just you know some kind of download that occurs you know through just meditation or some kind of time in nature or some fast or some sickness there's many ways that it could be there but it certainly seems psychedelic inspired when i start to hear you talk about you know kind of the mystical paradigm um that the norse people were involved in
1: oh absolutely and what this brings to mind is we know the flying ointments that came from some of the witcha tradition in May- in Europe and uh, England where women were writing their brooms. Mind you, I say writing because they would put this ointment with like aconite, hemlock, henbane, wormwood on the end of a broom and insert it. Oh wow. vaginally insert it. and that's is where we get the idea of writing a broom so that those substances are absorbed through the membranes through the vaginal wall in the Norse tradition, we have the vulva. Interestingly enough, their word is vulva for the seeress, which matches the same word as vulva for female anatomy. And one of the hallmarks of the vulva, the seeress, the women who would cast prophecy is they always carried a staff with a brass knob at the end. Now, no one's really flat out found direct correlation between flying ointments and psychedelic substance and the insertion of this brass rod, this brass knob, but we can really make that as a logical inference that they achieved these prophetic states through the absorption of of entheogens through the mucous membranes
0: unbelievable i wonder how many of these stories that we just have like oh yeah women you know witches riding brooms and then i mean i've heard that for my whole life and this is the first time i hear that and then of course the santa claus myth oh yeah santa claus jolly old guy red face flying reindeers you know like red and white yeah yeah yeah, great and but we don't understand that the the roots of this but there's probably many many more of these things that if actually you actually look where the origin came from that's incredibly incredibly interesting i'm glad you shared that and and really like opens your mind to and then of course what we did with that is they have these powers first of all harnessing their own sexuality which is deep in the tantra practice of like sexual energy itself is is magic with the ck you know right like you can use that for manifestation you can use that to connect you with source with god but this is a way that you can actually tap in and of course that was shunned by the capital R religion and then of course the use of entheogens anything that would you know take away the intermediary's power which is the church you know as the intermediary between self and the divine all of that was kind of smashed so of course we have witches as this bad thing riding brooms and doing horrible things or it's an empowered woman in charge of her sexual prowess using entheogens inserting them vaginally and probably being just a fucking awesome badass goddess yes you know? <laughs> and that's like the reality of it and then we get these you know this kind of Halloweened capital r religiousized version that just really denigrates you know what this thing really was That's
1: exactly it. And with Norse mysticism in the old times, there were actually two forms of magic. There's Gulder, which we can get more into, which is the singing of runes and the use of runes. And we do have some accounts of how that was done. We do have some hints of really how that was practiced and what went on with that. Then we have sather, which is that oracular trance-like work and that was primarily done by women. There are some accounts of men doing it, like Odin in the lore was trained to do Sather. But since it was a feminine mystery, we know almost nothing about how it was done, how it was performed. But the lore tells us that the Volva who traveled village to village who practiced Sather were feared, highly respected, and given great gifts to perform their rites because people were so afraid of because they were the badass witches
0: wow that's really cool all right so let's talk about let's talk about people's you know the mystical understandings that were the underpinnings for you know for people's belief systems you know what did they believe about the universe what did they believe about you know the forces that existed um, beyond the gods and the deification of these gods as archetypes etc what did they believe about the nature of the universe self the divine magic all of these different properties in as a generality
1: Ultimately, that it was an integral part of who they were and what their world was. For example, working with land spirits is a huge part of the Old Norse tradition. Weirdly enough, it is almost shunned in a lot of American Norse revival practices. But in European and Iceland, working with land spirits is huge. It's throughout the lore. And it's because people needed to live with the land. They needed to cooperate with the land. And so they really saw the creatures who lived in the rocks, who lived in the trees, who lived in the air. And they saw them as neighbors and friends and confidence that they had to work together with. They would make offerings. They would have special rituals and ceremonies to connect with the land spirits and work together with it. And even in Iceland today, they still, I wouldn't say venerate and worship, but they coexist in a wonderful way with the spirits of the land. It's an actual industry. For somebody to go out, let's say you want to build a road, this person will go and see a mound and go, nope, nope, there are fairy people living in that mound, the, the hidden folk, hudra folk, living in that mound, and they will literally route the highway around that stone so as not to disturb the people living in that mound so that they could have a better society, a better cooperation with the land, because it was an integral part of them. Then we get to the giants. Now, there are two types of giants in Norse lore. There are the Thurs, which are like the boating of anger, the hater, the destroyer. And these are purely malevolent, demonic, destructive forces. But when we really look at it, they're initiated by human beings and they're put Mm. into motion by humans. But when we get to the Jotnar, the Jotun is a spirit of the land. And the way that I describe people to understand a Jotun Is Imagine that you're out in the wilderness, you're in the mountains, and you're getting up higher and higher. Let's say you're climbing a 14er, right? And you get to that point of the mountain where you're like, I'm in the presence of God.
0: Hmm.
1: What is this divine thing that's around me? That's the yutin. The yutin is like that giant that is in that whole territory it rules over what the ecosystem is what kind of plants how the rocks form and it's not i'm not going to go so far as to say it's an intelligent living sapient being like we are but it has an intelligence that we don't quite understand in our linear modern language it still needs to be respected and it still needs to be cared for and and understood in such a way that let's say you're climbing mount everest wearing a speedo you're dead That mountain doesn't care about you. It's just like, that was dumb. But if you go there with a respect and you understand what the the land is like and what the nature system is like, then you're gonna get along so much nicer with that system, with, with those beings. Then when it comes to, let's say magic, when we get to runes, runes, the best way I can describe a rune is you could start off as a little character written on a piece of stone, or it can be a word carved on a stone ultimately, runes are the written language for the Proto-Norse and Old Norse languages. But a single rune is that subtle connection between the subtle parts of your mind and the subtle reality that's all around you, to the point where, let's look at Uruz, for example. Uruz is a rune that represents the letter U. It almost looks like an upside-down U. But when you connect with Uruz, think of your own primal strength. Think of when you're doing bench press, and you can feel the muscles in your chest. You feel your biceps flexing. And you feel that pure strength just building up inside you. That's Urus. Urus is that primal vitality that you see in a bison, in a buffalo that's just like out there raging. And so when you go out into the world and you see you know, the, the stature of a building, how strong a skyscraper needs to be, the foundation of that building, and all of the materials that holds up that skyscraper that's Urus. That's Urus, plain and simple. So in essence, their mysticism was a part of their life. It was a part of their world. It was a part of everything that they were and everything that they existed. And they just gave recognition to it with their own understanding through their mythos.
0: Right. It's it Again, this seems very psychedelic. And, and many of the traditions, like the ayahuasca traditions, which I'm quite familiar with and, and even in our modern lexicon, you know, these fairy beings, a lot of times people make the mistake of, oh, these are physical beings. Like you could touch them and like give them a high five with your hand. Well, that's not what, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about astral beings. They're talking about entities that exist in a realm beyond our ordinary waking consciousness. And that may not be embodied, at least in this form. Maybe they at once had a physical manifestation, but you're encountering a being that does not have a physical, a physical space that it's currently occupying but it's occupying it in the astral and then as you travel up the dimensional arc you know landscape these beings get less personal they're less likely to have a little conversation with you less likely to have any kind of personality structure but they come more archetypal you know it becomes like an energy dark a dark energy an angry energy a light energy a healing energy and so you move up the realms to the upper astral or the celestial or whatever you want to call it there's many different systems but these are all talking about the non-physical dimensionality that most of the cultures who've had you know any kind of direct experiential mystical tradition they all understand this you cannot do a dmt-based psychedelic enough times or even a psilocybin based one and not encounter beings and then have those beings be creative interesting you know wise enough that you say there's no way that i could be imagining this if i'm talking to myself this is a part of myself that is so much smarter than me and so much more funnier than me and so much more creative than me it's it's it doesn't even make sense i'm always open to that possibility you know as within so without of course hermes trismegistus gave us that wisdom and and i don't know if it's necessary to even differentiate but nonetheless you see this and you see okay so these were this was a culture that actually understood that we're constantly surrounded by energies entities non physical things that in the animist traditions that you find in a lot of psychedelic cultures they actually believe them as actual beings and and can actually communicate with these beings and so it's really really interesting to see like how much of that Was at play in norse tradition when we think of it and as maybe okay maybe the shipibo people the ayahuasca tradition that makes sense but it was also very much the same thing but just with different words and different ways that they called it giants and fairies versus you know what in the animus tradition we might call it exactly
1: in in the norse tradition we have yggdrasil the great world tree that holds the nine worlds in place. Now, the lore doesn't specifically address nine worlds, but those of us who have really plied through the lore and pieced it together, we find that Yggdrasil serves as that conduit that the shamanic type, the sather practitioner, can get into that conduit and travel to the realm of the light elves, Lyosophem, and really con- confer with these beings which are for want of a better word, like the ascended masters of other traditions they're like the archangels are these higher level beings that aren't quite gods, but you can traverse these realms. You can go to Asgard, where the gods are. You can go to Vanaheim, where the fertility gods like Frey and Freya are, or you can go to Svartalfheim, where the dwarves are, the master smiths, the dark elves, or you can go to the underworld of Helheim, the, the realm of the dead, and Jotunheim, where the giants are, and you're absolutely right. These are energetic states of existence, of beings who exist, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. They're gonna, they exist in a reality that has different laws of physics and a different language than we have. The language is often not linear, but if your mind gets tuned either through entheogens or you have endogenous means of getting there through different ecstatic rituals, then your mind can shift to the state of the light elves, to the gods, and you can have this direct one-on-one connection with them, which is just life-altering and mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And and it's it's I think it's important that you keep mentioning that you can do this through non-entheogenic means. And this was a great lesson that an aboga shaman gave me because I went to go do aboga as part of my spiritual exploration and practice with the Bwiti shaman, tenth generation Bwiti shaman, and he gave me aboga, which is a very strong African psychedelic. Last you know about twenty-four hours, and he goes to me and this is before the medicine kicks in and he goes okay i want you to go to the moon and i'm like well the medicine hasn't kicked in yet and he's like no go to the moon he was very stern he's like go to the moon i'm like i under i understood your request but i, I can't i can't go there because i'm not on the medicine yet like i can't imagine envision it he's like yes you can go to the moon and so with imagination as my bridge i just imagined the moon and i went there with my imagination and He's like, okay, there's somebody on the moon who wants to talk to you. And it was my grandmother who passed. And she was there on the moon. And we had this beautiful conversation. And I started crying. And I think it was, I believe that was the first time I actually had a communication with my deceased grandmother. And also the first time that I actually built that bridge where I felt that I was genuinely communicating with, you know, someone who had deceased. And, of course, it could be my mind. And I always keep a healthy skepticism. But this was my grandma. I could feel her. And I, I knew it was her. And then it, as I finished, he could see when I was done having this you know, conversation in my mind. And he taps me on the head and he says, remember, you don't need medicine to do this. And then 30 minutes later, an hour later, the medicine kicked in. And it was like on hyperdrive. You know, My ability was there. But it was a beautiful lesson that he gave me, which was just, and this is what I'll tell people, is using imagination as that bridge you have to engage in it knowing that it's imagination that's going to get the wheel rolling like i had to just use my pure imagination to get me to the moon and then from there some other some other force took over some other thing that was beyond my imagination started to take over but if i didn't use my imagination to build that part of the bridge to get to that place that other thing wouldn't have been allowed to actually come through but you know ultimately i didn't need the aboga to do that and i still don't because of that you know because of that training now it's sometimes a lot clearer than other times you know and, and certainly sometimes i feel like i have greater access than other times and there's definitely certain practices i can do that can allow me to have greater access but once you've actually felt it and experienced it like for example i don't expect anybody listening to this to be like wow that makes sense i totally believe you like please don't like don't totally believe me until you've experienced it but if you've experienced it then believe yourself you know and once you once you're there and and you've experienced it for yourself then make your own you know make your own judgments about what you believe but it's a it's a show not tell game you know like we all need to have the ability to go find this for ourselves rather than just listen to someone say you know tell you that they did or even worse someone who does it for you like oh you don't know you can't do this but i can do this for you so pay me and I'll be the intermediary, you know? And I think that the, the time of that, of course, learn from a teacher and, and rely on the skills of people who are masters, of course. But the idea of any master should be, you can do this too. Like, I'm not special. I wasn't ordained as some magical being. Like, this is an innate quality that all of us have. You want to talk to God? Find your own way, you know? And these are the different tools that are available.
1: I love that you said that because the imagination is integral to the process when you're communicating be it with a, a dead loved one or some form of an astral entity that doesn't communicate with our language the information comes in with what i describe as a subtle non-linear language the brain doesn't have a way of interpreting that interpreting interpreting <laughs> that as a language instead it has to pass through the patterns that you've already developed within your conscious within your psyche so, and that will only come through the imagination. I call it the imagination filter. And how it would describe this one is if two people are experiencing the same entity, one person is a visual learner, the other person is an audible learner. The visual learner is like, wow, I see this blue fuzzy light that's kind of flickering, kind of wavering a little bit. And the other person's like, no, I'm hearing this really weird buzzing pulsating sound. Well, they're receiving the information from that entity in the exact same way. It's just they're interpreting it different with their own mind. And so when you're describing going to the moon, using your imagination, right? You're going there. That's how you get there. And when you receive that communication, it has to pass through that imagination filter. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to understand the communication that you're getting. Mm -hmm. And so often we're just kind of poo-pooed away going, oh, you're just making things up. You're just imagining it. And so people go into questioning going, wow, was that experience really real? And what I will tell everybody is anytime you receive information like that Gnostically, go out, test it and validate it. Verify that what you got is authentic. And if you can't, then maybe you were making it up. But if you can find some correlation to that information, you've made a solid connection and trust that.
0: Or if it's beneficial, you know, yes. even beyond even beyond the the necessity to validate it. Is this helpful? did this make my life better or did it make my life worse? And, and a good litmus test, did it fill me with more fear or did it inflate my ego in a dangerous way? Well, if it's either of those things and it fails on either of those tests, discard it. Whether you're actually communicating with an entity or not, if they're filling you with fear or inflating your ego, it's not the right thing to talk to, right? So So either you're making it up or it's the wrong, you got the wrong channel and it's time to change it. But if it's actually filling you with more love, more inspiration, more growth, and it's actually productive, then keep going, you know, I, like keep going.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with you, thank you that's great
0: yeah so and this is a part of you know so this is a part of your practice, so you know deviating for a moment from the the Norse mythology and mysticism, you have a practice where you communicate with uh with entities you call the whisperers, so bring us into uh bring us into your own personal practice um that, that you've kind of engaged in.
1: Absolutely, one of my favorite segues into this one is I will say that necromancy is a Norse practice. There's a lot of elements in the lore that describe communicating with the dead or communicating with other beings, but it's something that I've had a natural aptitude. I grew up in a house that was haunted. My parents took me to a spiritualist church. I had exposure to transmediumship, mediumship channeling. I, I had been trained in seance for a very young age, because I was communicating with disembodied beings since I was a child and I needed to understand what it was that I was communicating with.
0: So and tell how me I about your first, what was your first experience that really sticks out? Maybe not your very first, but what's like one of those initial experiences where you're like, whoa, what is going on here?
1: I was actually on the playground in elementary school. I was probably like third or fourth grade. I was this young. And yes, we all tend to say, well, these are imaginary friends, but imaginary friends, you play games with them, you have fun with them, right? No, these guys are sitting there telling me, you know, there are five worlds that you can encounter and that there were five different layers of existence from this time period to this time period, which now I understand is different densities, layers of density. And these beings were describing stuff to me that were just like, what? Wow. And it even continued when I was in junior high between classes, between lessons, I would be scribbling out these notes on a piece of paper about infinity and what little bit I was getting from mathematics at that time period about asymptotes and the the construction of a line and all of these sort of things, descriptions. I was writing out these notes on infinite mathematics. My mom looked at these and she's like, I need to take you back to my (laughs) college tutor because this doesn't make sense. He looked over my notes and he's like, you're doing the stuff that Bertrand Russell was writing when he wrote his principle of Mathematica, the same name that Newton wrote his book. And he's like, but this is considered to be one of the most unintelligible books on mathematics. How are you getting this? And I'm like, disembodied entities, the whispers (laughs) describing how infinite mathematics work at a linear scale. I don't know. And he's like, no, you just can't be pulling this out of nowhere. And I'm like, yeah, I can. (laughs) And so it's, just continued throughout the years. They will give me information and I will tell you flat out I argue with them all the time. Because like we talked about, is it my own imagination? Am I making this up or do I have an authentic connection? You would think, you know, I've just turned 49 years old. After all of these years, since doing it as a kid, to this day, I would like have firm, solid, yep, that was communication. I get it. I always test, I always question, I always wonder. And they are patient with me. They're patient when I argue with them going, no, this is silly. Like when I was putting together some stuff on crossing through the worlds to communicate with other beings and how to shift yourself using runes into these other worlds, I would look at this diagram that I was working with and some of the stuff I was coming up with. And I'm like, no, this is nonsense. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night, just have an urge to grab the poetic Edda, which is the old Norse poetry. And I would open it up and read through a section. I'm like, Oh, this is what you meant by that one. I'd start mm-hmm. writing it down and they're like, yeah, see, we'll just give you that time. <laughs> I'd say Here, you want to learn about this stuff? And I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. At my desk at work, somebody would literally put a book on my desk about that topic. And I'm like, fine, <laughs> I get it. Or the opposite. I wanted to learn about the Kabbalistic tree of life. I wanted to learn about the Sephiroth. And they're like, no, 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 no. You don't need to learn this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I do. There's enough going on here. I want to understand it. And they said, look, the only thing you need to understand about this tree of life is that Kether, the highest Sephiroth, and Malkuth, the lowest one here in the world, are one in the same. Humanity created these as a construct so that we could have these levels of initiation, but there is no difference between Kether and Malkuth. They're one in the same. And I'm like, no, screw you. I'm learning this stuff. <laughs> They literally hid the book I was trying to read on me. I couldn't find it. I tore apart the house looking for it. Two weeks later, I literally gave up and said, fine, I won't study this stuff, but I want the book back so I can read the other stuff in there. Poof, right there it is. I'm like
0: okay so this is so this is this is very interesting because so i'm good friends with paul selig who's i think is one of the mm-hmm. most remarkable conscious channels that i've ever encountered an incredibly humble guy and he has the same kind of contrarian relationship with you know the guides as he call him you call him the whispers he calls them the guides and he'll, he'll always be questioning i like really you know no and he'll he'll be having these kind of He's probably the most skeptical out of anybody in the audience, you know, and he'll go through and, and they have a kind of patient, but also kind of joking. And they'll say to them, like, if the man will permit us, we will continue. And they'll, you know, say things like that. And it's a very interesting dynamic that he has with the guides, but the, the message and I was, you know, I'm always skeptical. I approach everything skeptical, but the message is so impeccable of what he's, what he's sharing that you can no longer ignore it it's playing like a stradivarius in tune and if you have any you know mystical understanding what he's saying is so spot on that either he is himself you know having access to the great mysticism that needs to be shared with the world and obfuscating it because of his own ego that doesn't want to allow him to recognize the genius that he's actually has that's possible but it really seems like this is the guides that are that are providing this and he's just turning out these books you know he's he's orating the books live to an audience and then compiling them and that's it i mean it's all it's all happening right in front of our eyes he's not writing it and they're impeccable you know from the start so okay so i understand this phenomenon now and i understand your phenomenon it's 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 something that certainly certain people seem to have a channel that is a little bit more tuned these non-physical entities and and the communication is a little bit easier doesn't mean that people can't open the channel but there's certain people with a proclivity for that and you certainly seem to be one of those individuals now what gets really interesting is you saying that the book was hidden because this starts to cross over into the physical laws of the world and this is very interesting so while for my own i've you know crossed over the boundary of skepticism understanding the whisperers are talking to you even giving you advanced mathematics i'm like i'm all i'm all into that but where my skeptical where my skeptical mind gets you know activated is okay so now we're talking about their ability to influence physical matter and that's a that's a realm of magic that i'm not quite comfortable with so from your own understanding what happened there and what is possible in these in these the interaction of the non-physical dimensions with the physical dimensions.
1: I really wish I understood the mechanics of it. And it's always been one of the things I'm skeptical of, right? I grew up in the spiritualist tradition. I grew up hearing about seances, about table tipping, and all of the sort of strange knocks and bumps that you hear with seance. It happens. And like I said, I'm super skeptical about table tipping and all of that kind of weird physical moving stuff. However, one time as I'm in this space here, my ritual space, I was sitting with a black mirror in my hand, meditating Explain on that it.
0: real quick because oh. people might not understand what a black mirror is.
1: A black mirror literally is just a piece of glass with black paint on it, but it serves as a tool for the mind to open a portal to other realms to connect with other beings. It's a great seance tool. It's The ancient Greeks called it a necromantium Dr. Raymond Moody uses it today to help his patients to connect with loved ones who have crossed onto the other side. He calls it a psychomanthium. And when I lead rituals and I help people connect with loved ones, we use a black mirror for the same reason. It's a a tool that enables the mind to connect with beings in other realms because it acts as like a portal for the consciousness to connect to these other realms. And so I'm holding a small one in my hand, meditating on it, communicating with these beings. Meanwhile, about seven feet away is a bench across the room. And it starts going dun, 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 dun. dun. I'm just like, really <laughs> you do that now? I shouldn't be skeptical because growing up in the house that I did, you could set something on the bed, turn around to go mess with something on the shelf, go back to pick up that object off of the bed. And it would be gone that quick. When I brought keyboards, musical keyboards into the house, because I've been a musician my entire life, I would be in the middle of the night hearing the little keys going, tink, 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 tink. I'm just like, really? What's going on here? So I don't understand the mechanics of it, but it's just one of those things that have proven itself time after time after time that these non-physical energetic beings have some means of manipulating physical
0: objects. And it seems like a, a limited means you know from these stories it's 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 very interesting it reminds me a little bit of uh the movie interstellar did you see the movie interstellar with matthew mcconaughey i well, did he's in, he's in that alternate dimension that bardo that he's in you know where he's actually communicating through the books mm-hmm. that he's like knocking off the shelf and it's like an immense amount of his effort in the in the bardo that he's in in that you know non-physical dimension that he's in in the black hole an immense amount of his effort and emotion can just tip the book over (laughs) and it seems like that you know obviously it's a story but there's interesting ways that the human mind accesses stories perhaps because it's a known it's a known truth that we've played out even though i think the movie ghost had it like that where you know ultimately it's very hard you know to be a non-physical entity and actually interact with the physical world because you're you're trying to actually build a bridge um just like it can potentially be hard for us to as physical beings to access the non-physical certainly some people have more capabilities there Uh, but it's really interesting to just open our mind to that possibility that some in some way there's a force that can be applied that's a condensation of that energetic force and it condenses to such a, a density that it can actually you know make something happen in our density of reality which is just a condensation of the all anyways so but really interesting to think about
1: Absolutely. Uh, some of the two explanations that I've gotten on this one is Alan Kardec wrote a book about spirits, and it was a channeled work talking about how there could be a higher level being that has very little density compared to our physical reality. It cannot manipulate the physical, but it is higher intelligence, higher in compassion, higher in wisdom, and it will employ the use of a lower density being to manipulate the object. So there's this multiple layers of potential communication loss Mm. with what this entity wants to express, what this entity understands and communicates than what you receive and what you understand. But it takes this little entity to be able to move it. But he's also saying that it takes our energy. We have to contribute energy into that one because our energy has an ability to manipulate physical objects too. So it is the mutual connection of all three of these entities which could even contribute to the poltergeist effect, which is just the emotional output of telekinetic energy to move an object. Like, you know, you can't express your emotion physically. You can't say what you need to say. You can't cry, you can't scream, but that energy needs to release in some other way. And it comes out telekinetically, like a book flying across the room or a glass getting knocked over.
0: Yeah, really interesting. also just to go to another story it it seems to me that the world is now going through a renaissance that's more than a psychedelic renaissance spiritual renaissance it's also in great challenge and you know but challenge creates adaptation and i think all of this is a convergence and an emergence and a potential ascension of humankind to our new you know spiritual uh, into a spiritual evolution of sorts it's happening because it seems to me that people's gifts are coming online that i'm that i'm aware of people's gifts are coming online faster and stronger than you know i've ever seen in my life before now of course i have some kind of confirmation bias and selection bias based on the circles that i'm in and i have to be aware of that but it's almost like in in the in the show game of thrones which i don't know if you saw that as well did you Mm -hmm. see game of thrones i did so the dragons get birthed into the world and then all of a sudden everybody's magic gets a little bit better you know the people who could make a little tiny fire can now make a big flame and then they go around and like magic was birthed back into the world in a big way. And it really seems to me like there's a potential that our spiritual capability as it's now rising in the collective gives access to everybody as we're all connected to the collective and gifts are coming online in a stronger way. And so while things may still be extraordinarily rare or difficult now, maybe in a certain amount of time, even linear time from now, these things may not be so it may not be so difficult and may even be more possible as as the collective shifts and as we as beings participating in the collective start to shift.
1: This is one of the disappointing things with Disney magic or Harry Potter magic, is a lot of people have come to the belief that magic is this waving of a wand, bibbidi bobbity boop, and things instantly transpire right in front of you. But that's not how magic works. And when you tune into the magical potential and manifestation you see that what really alters is your perception of reality the actions you take and the things that are drawn to you and that actual magic transpires over time time is the medium by which magic takes place and the more people like you and I are that are opening to that one and we're developing that and we're raising our spiritual potential and understanding how manifestation works it's inserting that information to the collective unconscious and the rest of the people that maybe never experienced that are suddenly now more open to it. And they're like, oh, maybe these entities are around here. Maybe I really do need a shift of my emotional state to bring about better prosperity. And I'm not necessarily talking like the secret or the law of attraction, but I'm talking that you move yourself into this higher state of possibility and probability, you now become more open to the actions that you can take in the real world, knowing that those actions can lead to fruitful results. And that's real magic. And more and more people are tuning into that one. The more we are doing our work and the more we're helping people tune in to do that work and realize what magic really is.
0: Well, you you look at someone like Joe Dispenza and, you know, he's, he's become a, a friend over the years. We've done some podcasts and what he's bringing people through is, is nothing short of magic. And he's getting people to get into the emotional state of the reality that they're trying to live. And either way it's a win and this is the this is the beautiful part about it because you're living in the emotional reality where you're well where you're abundant where you're loved and so you're actually creating the reality by your own by your own volition but then interestingly that's what draws that reality to you like attracts like and these it seems to be tapping into these universal laws of the universe like attracting like is just a very simple a simple kind of idea but it seems to be the reality where it's not you identifying as the one who's lacking the one who's sick and hoping to be well because that's creating distance and so you're actually as you identify with the one who's sick or the one who's poor and you're begging or praying or hoping for something else you're actually like attracting like you're actually attracting more sickness or more poverty because that's your identification state but you get to the place where you're already abundant like they say pray as if it has already been done get to the place where you're already loved, already wealthy, already well, then not only do you get the pleasure of living that reality in your emotional state, but then the like attracts like phenomenon can actually start to work for you instead of against you.
1: Exactly. And this is one of the lessons I teach with runes is we'll look at two different runes. We have now which deals with need with desperation, with what you don't have versus Wunyo, which is the joy of what you do have and what you have accomplished. Now, you can use these runes as ways of reframing the same situation. Let's say it's the end of the paycheck, the end of the month, and you've got $25 left. You can go, oh, no, I've only got $25 left. What am I going to do? That's a Nauthi's mind shift. A Wunyo mind shift would be like, wow, I've got my bills paid. I've got food in the refrigerator. Everything's taken care of. And I've got $25 (laughs) left. This is great. It's the same situation. It's just, you're using a different room to apply to it. And so I get people to try to look at whatever their situation are, and they're going, wow, this really sucks. This is terrible. This is awful. I had them lean into that one so that they feel it, they experience it. And they're just like, oh, this is awful. I'm like, yep, that's your now the state. Now, what would ever be the same with everything there? But the difference is, how do you make the joy out of this? Well, I've got a house, I've got a good running car, I've got a good job. I can see the path before me that's getting better. And I'm like, yes, this is your foundation that you feel that gratitude, that joy, that sense of appreciation for what you do have so that you suddenly are aligned to getting more of what you've got. The, the Lord tells us that better not to offer too much for a gift demands a gift. And a lot of people think that means, oh, I got to make sacrifices to the gods. I've got to give these away. I've got to get that. And I'm like, wait a minute. You've already got the gifts. You've already got the things. This is a call for you to be grateful and show appreciation for what you do have so that the gods and the universe and everything hears that and you tend to get more of what you're focusing on that you do have. So I try to get people to make that shift.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And people underestimate the gift of gratitude. You know, I mean, I think one of the big, the, again, talking about universal laws, one of the universal laws is reciprocity. And that's exactly what you're talking about and you know i was deep in a in a wachuma masada ceremony uh with my great wachumero the spiritual teacher that um that i worked with for many years who recently passed and he was really teaching this law of reciprocity and he's, he teaches many different beautiful laws but i started to understand it and it was interacting with it in an interesting way where I recognize that you know you smoke mapachos which is uh which is a sacred tobacco um that's like basically like a sacred tobacco cigarette that they they hand roll out there and <clears throat> it was interesting i started to learn that you know from that animist tradition that the fire itself was an entity or a, or a force or whatever and and so as i would light the mapacho I would light it, and there was all of these different things that would happen. The smoke would go in my eye, a little weird things like the the fire wasn't behaving in the way that i that I wanted it to, and the smoke wasn't. And then I remembered the law of reciprocity, and I said, "Hey, fire, you know, thank you. Thank you for, you know, giving me access to burn this tobacco and connect with the spirit of the tobacco plant, you know, like, thank you. And then everything shifted, and I could literally hear the voice like, you're welcome son just remember you know remember remember to say thank you that's all that's all we'd ever ask was like the word that it came it's like there's nothing more that you need i don't need to make a a fire altar and you know sacrifice things i just need to say thanks you know thanks to and and that's going to be applied to everything thank you to your food to the sun to the more we can get in that state of gratitude it's going to have those positive effects on us internally partly because we're connected to that thing that we're thanking, you know, like all in unicity, all is the same anyway. So that feeling of gratitude is, is mutual, always, always on the spiritual level. And I think it's just so important for people to remember that thank you is, thank you is always enough.
1: Exactly. And that's what the ancestors were teaching us when they taught us to connect with the the spirits of the land, the gratitude for the gifts that they give us. Whether they're a fire being or a stone being, you know, the air that we breathe, everything, we're all connected. And if we want to personify these elements of nature, fine. But I do think that they are geniuses in ways that we don't understand. Even if it's the fire of a lighter or a match, it's still a living being of some kind. Mm. And expressing that gratitude for that moment just goes so far.
0: Yeah. It's great. No doubt. All right, so let's talk let's go dive straight into runes here because we have mentioned them quite a bit and this is really interesting so one aspect of runes what you see in the movies and things is the runes being used in an oracular capacity so i forget the how to pronounce it but the saithers or whatever that that had the oracular capacity and mm-hmm. and that's certainly one aspect of the runes but there's a, a whole other aspect that you're talking about which you know is is different than the oracular but let's talk about these one at a time the first is The oracular utilization of runes, throwing the bones, they would sometimes say, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but so what was that? What was that utilization? Very much like we would use tarot or or one of these different modalities now.
1: Absolutely. And I can say that using runes as a divination tool is very powerful, very effective. I've done it for many years. I left it behind for a while, but the whispers are telling me it's time to pick it up and start using it again. But here's the funny thing. As I do my deep dive through the lore, as I do my exploration through it, there's absolutely no indication historically or archaeologically that runes were ever used as a divination tool. Interesting. Sure, there's the, the Tacitus where he wrote about Germania, talking about a Germanic tribe, but it was in the Gaulish territories where the father of a family would inscribe characters on little wood chips throw them up to the sky and let them fall over a cloth and then use that for his oracular work. But he never said that they were runes. He never described them as runes and they're never mentioned that way in any other bit of the lore. In fact, the oldest reference that I can ever find of using runes as a divination tool comes to us from the 1980s. (laughs) But I won't discount them as a divinatory tool because a lot of people can attest to it. I can personally attest to it. There just seems to be no historical basis for it. However, the lore and the archeology span and comparative literature do show us that runes were used for magic. That goes way back, like over 2000 years ago, we find little carvings of runes that don't make sense when you try to make a language out of it, because primarily runes are the written form of Proto-Norse and Old Norse languages. But you have these inscriptions that have absolutely no linguistic sense to them whatsoever. But if you look at each rune as not only a phonetic value, as like a letter, but each rune has an idea to it. They're an ideogram. And you look at the energetic nature of it, from the mystical mindset, you realize that these amulets that were carved using the Elder Futhark, the old runic alphabet, you see that this was a protection formula, or you'll see that this was a healing formula. And you could really start putting the pieces together when you look at the runes as ideograms rather than just phonemes. And this carried through into the younger Futhark, the, the more recent use of the runes, where they would actually start writing out more of words. And this is where we get words like laukaz alu, which is most definitely a healing formula. When you get phrases like, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, here we go. Thor Vigi. Thor, bless and protect. Vigi being a bless and protect thing. So if that was carved on a runestone, it was ca- calling on Thor to protect that. And then throughout the lore, we are talked. We hear little phrases like Onrande gel under a shield, I sing, and we see these little references of the runes being sung throughout the lore. And if we pair that with the archaeology of amulets that were carved with magical intention, we see that into the lore with how they were sung. We look at other comparative literature that talk about these people were singing these magical incantations. We can piece together that the ancient use of runes was, yes, they were carved with intention, but then they were sung, which really brings us back to the work of Jonathan Goldman, where he talks about intention with frequency equals manifestation. The old Norse people were doing this for the longest time with runes. And where I bring that to the 21st century is like we talked about, what is wurus? Wurus is your sense of strength. It is your sense of vitality. And I put together a little bit of a video. These are actual runes that I will use. Let's say I'm in the gym and I'm doing that bench press. And I am on my fifth set of five, and I'm looking to really kind of push a new PR on this. I will, before picking up those weights on that last set, I will enchant into myself, Wurus, so willow, Wurus, so willow, Ooros, so willow. And I'm feeling that strength, that vitality going into my muscles. I'm really developing that mind muscle connection and really bolstering and augmenting the strength there. So that when I bang out that last set of five, I'm like, yeah, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then I help people to associate that with everything in their life. You know, Fehu is a rune of value, but it's also a rune of effort and energy. So if you're working towards a degree or building a business, your Fehu is a time, effort, and energy you are putting in to getting that degree, to building that business, to working on your relationship. So Fehu could mean a whole lot of things. It's that investment that you're putting into getting things done
0: the uh it it's it was really interesting for me to hear you talk to paul check about this i really enjoyed it because i've recently gotten into my own mantra practice largely because i interviewed someone dr kulrit Chaudhary, who wrote a book called sound medicine who talks goes deep into the hindu tradition and all of the different mystical you know aspects of that and their use of mantra and their use of creating mantras for different Different functionalities and how the actual names of the deities were magical names because the chanting of those names, the sounds that were created ah, au, ah, um, oh, you know, all of these different things have different characteristics that can that it can imbue upon you when you actually bring your body as a resonant vibratory, you know, entity into those states of those so states of sound, those states of vibration it can actually make changes. My wife is a sound healer, so it makes perfect sense that, you know, I felt what the effect of these different frequencies can be, especially when they're self-generated, but then to understand that the runes were a technology, you know, that were actually put together with sounds in accord with what the, what the frequency could be, just like the deities were named in accord with the frequencies of what the chanting of those could actually imbue upon person who's engaging in those sounds it's it's incredible
1: absolutely and in fact there really is that like we talked about earlier a correlation to the old proto-norse language and the vedic languages through an ancient proto-indo-european language to the point where i'm fascinated in the Norse tradition when we're using runes and a a formula for manifestation is alu a-l-u when we sing it like a rune uh, rune script, we're putting our runes together. So we do that, Wuru Suwilo, Aulu. Aulu is that manifestation part. But when you get to the mantra, right, it's Om, Aum. It's the same sound, that Aulu. Mm. And it's the same sound that you find in Hallelujah. <laughs> so it really makes me go, hmm, what is it in the ancient mind that knew about that Aulu sound that brought that manifestation ability out? So you're absolutely right. There's this strong correlation with sound in these traditions.
0: Yeah. And I, I would just encourage people to, again, this is a sh- this is a show not tell game. Like don't listen, don't listen to me and then and Kadrick here and, and say, like, oh, got it. Like, no, do it. <laughs> you know, like go, you know, create your, you know, have your own mantra. Find one of these if you're if you find yourself more drawn to the runic mantras, go for it you know if you find yourself more drawn to the vedic mantras go for it but but try it like feel it and then see how it see how it interacts with you you know give it a give it your own run and i think that's the that's the thing that i would just encourage people for especially for all of these safe things now of course you know if we're talking psychedelics make sure that you're mindful and careful because you're playing with fire there but if you're talking sound or breath or you know dance fucking do it. You know, just just do it. Go for it. Like don't don't hold yourself back, you know, like really like experiment and play and dive in. Absolutely. The map
1: is not the territory. You're not going to know what this is until you're actually experiencing it. You could listen to us, you could read the books, you could become very knowledgeable. And remember, knowledge and experience and wisdom are vastly different things. And the only way you're going to really understand this stuff is make it experiential. Take a little bit of it and go out, play with it, see how it works, how it feels right. Let yourself feel silly. If you just want to sit there and go, oh, oh, feel silly for the first thirty seconds to two minutes that you're doing mm-hmm. it, but then just let your mind if it if it fades and and goes into some other place, follow it. But if it still feels silly, go. man, it's not for me. That's cool. You guys can do it all you want.
0: <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So another interesting thing that i've been that i've gotten aware of recently is uh the creation of sigils so and the utilization and the way that i was instructed by a by a recent friend who had you know he got these tribal markers and he had these really cool symbols that he would draw on his arm and i asked him well, what are these he goes oh this is my sigil magic practice it's like sigil magic like explain more and basically what he does is he takes a word and his method is he removes all the vowels so if the word was freedom it would be frdm and then he would just go into his own trance state where he cleared his mind and start drawing from the shapes of those letters condensing drawing condensing allowing his mind to you know creatively modify those letters into eventually condensing it to a symbol where the symbol meant everything that he wanted freedom to mean him and then that was a symbol that he could use if that was something he wanted to work with you know to really be free in his choices and actions he would draw this the freedom sigil on his body and so i'm interested to hear your take on it because obviously runes are a different thing it has a much more traditional construct but in a way these are symbols of things that are meaningful that were somehow distilled down um so what's your understanding of, of the sigil practice and how it can be utilized uh, for people who are interested.
1: love sigil magic. I've done it in so many different ways. And the runes absolutely lend themselves perfectly to sigil working. Like we talked about, uh, the frequency and sound as manifestation, we take that a step further with every shape and symbol of the runes. I'll give you an example. If we're working with what's called the Harrier, which are the eternal single combatant warriors, they are the perfect ideal archetype of the mature warrior. And if you want to tap into that warrior archetype, that warrior aspect, I'll give you three runes to work with. We're going to talk about It's a rune of aggression and violence. If left alone, it's just pure aggressive violence. We already talked about Urus being that primal strength, that primal power, and that's really what a warrior needs, that to be able to tap into that strength and that physical prowess. But... The warrior needs the rune Tyrwaz. Tyrwaz is associated with the, the Norse god Tyr about structure, about discipline, about focus, about self-sacrifice for the greater good. If you were to take the symbols of those three runes, the stave forms, and stack them on top of each other, you would get what's called a bind rune. And working with bind runes is a very, very traditional magical practice that dates back you know, 2000 years throughout the whole history of working with runes is you stack them together. Now, where you come into this one is you need to think about your aggression, your violent tendencies, because that's your Thurizas. You need to tap into what is your physical strength, your vitality, your physical prowess. That's your Uruz. What's your reason for doing it? What is your discipline level? What is your training? And that's your Tiwaz. And if you were to take the seed sound of all three of those runes, Paired with your internal understanding of that, you can load that sigil, that bind rune, with just the seed sound of thoot, thoot. And you could turn it into like an ecstatic ritual. You're just going thoot, 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 thoot. Really concentrating on what it means to be a warrior. Now, if you've carved that onto like a little piece of wood or you paint it onto some stone and it's like this little amulet that you can carry with you, now you need to go into a situation where you need to be a little bit more aggressive. Maybe you need to have a confrontation with your boss or a coworker. Maybe you're going into a legal battle where you need to have a little bit more of a gumption. Or you know you're going into a situation where, hey, maybe you're an MMA fighter and you want that aggressive energy, right? You take that, that charged sigil with you into that situation you remember what it feels like to be connected with those three runes. You say to yourself, food, 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 you're back into that aggressive warrior. That's mm. disciplined and focused. And you could bring that energy out of the ritual space into the real world with you through that kind of sigil working.
0: I love that because what you're talking about is anchoring. And, yes. and so it's the process of anchoring your emotional state that you've built and imbued into this symbol and then built that and then by utilizing and and kind of calling upon that symbol and the sounds associated with that symbol then you're anchoring yourself back to that state and you can you can anchor with a variety of different things you can anchor with the smell you can anchor with the sound you can anchor with the with the symbol itself but the process of anchoring is 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 a real thing you know i mean this is a way that the more you do it you know and it can be even a song if you have a meditation song you play that song and instantly you'll drop much easier into those you know theta waves that you're trying to go for because the song is anchored to that state shift that you're actually going for so that's a great way to actually enhance the effectiveness of utilizing these sigils now if you were trying now let's say you have the symbol but what you were talking about was using sound paired with the symbol I don't think that our English words in, in the romantic languages have any kind of, they're not like the runes, where the sound actually is paired in a meaningful way with what the actual meaning is. So so what would you do if you wanted to create sound with modern concepts and words, or would you just recommend saying, look, the runes, you know, they got it right. <laughs> they understood how to pair the sounds with symbology and just do some research there. Or do you think there's a way that we could take our modern words and then alter the sound for something that makes sense to actually anchor to that sound.
1: Well, two things I'm going to address with that one is the language that was used for the runes, the old Norse and proto Norse language is a language that evolved into English. So the rune fehu that we talked about really meant cattle and investment, but it eventually became the rune of fe and that word fe became our word fee. The rune for Dagaz, which talks about the change from night into day, Dagaz is where we get the rune day from. The rune for Yera that talks about success and abundance and growth is where we get the word year from. (laughs) So some of these words that are embedded throughout runes are actually still in our language. Runes like Isa looks like the letter I. It is the letter I. It looks like it sounds like it. So Willow looks like the letter S. It is the letter S. Rido looks exactly like the letter R. It is. Burkana is a B. All the way through it. Fehu looks like an F. So the runes are already in our language. We're already Mm. speaking runic languages, whether we realize it or not. So we can utilize it that way. But the thing that I really like about using nonsense sounds and nonsense symbols is our conscious mind loves to get in the way and fuck things up. Big time! It goes and then <laughs> yeah. goes. What am I doing this? What am I? Do? Why am I doing this? Why, why? No, this is this is nonsense. But if you could take a nonsense symbol, you can take a nonsense sound that means absolutely nothing to the conscious mind. But you know what it means at the subconscious. You know what it means at the experiential. You know what it means at the emotional level. You're going to anchor that deeply with that energy because emotions and energy are the same thing and you're going to bypass that criticism of the conscious mind trying to overanalyze and wondering what are we doing this here because you're really doing something nonsensical to everyday ordinary reality so that you can tap deeper into your own being and hit the causal layers of existence and affect real change that way so yeah, yeah let it be nonsensical
0: yeah, and I suppose in the same way you could you could start with the sound of the English word, just like you I was talking about creating the sigil, starting with the letters and then modifying it until it's felt right. It just feels right when you do it. When you get it down and you distill it down, like something it something in you clicks. You know, it just feels right. There's a smile or there's this, this kind of like feeling like aha, like I, I got it. And I suppose you could do the same thing with the sound, like the word freedom. You know, and then you could play with freedom, e-o, e-o. and maybe that's your thing. You know, I was, I'm obviously on a podcast, so I'm not exactly clearing my mind and doing it, but it could become something else that through the incantation you could modify and then and then imbue it and then as you said feeling more free feeling the ability to and anchoring it to that so that the sound the symbol and the state that you're actually desiring all become one and then you're a magician you've you're practicing real
1: magic Exactly. You've got to make it as abstract as possible. And like you said, if you can go to that EO, EO, it makes it super abstract. So you stop going, well, what does freedom mean to me? What is it like? And you go out and you experience it and you start living it because it's embedded now at that energetic level. Amazing.
0: Well, this has been such a pleasure to jump in here with you and talk about all this. I know you have some courses, you have a book, you have all, all kinds of different things. Just give us a, a cursory view of all the places where people can dive in further to get more uh, more of your work and you know dive in.
1: Sure. The book I wrote, Runes for Transformation, we take a look at the runes that you have internally, like I talked about, Urus is your strength, but then to find that in the world around you and the life that you're living knowing that if you can shift your internal world, you can shift your external world. And so I first help you identify your internal runes and in the world, runes around you in the world. But then I take you through a process of creating runic mantra, kind of like what we talked about. We, you'll create a will statement like you do with a sigil, and then you'll turn that into runes. And then that becomes kind of like a, a runic mantra for living your life. And that's the basis of runes for transformation. Uh, if you go to my website, kdrick.com, then you'll find the resources there. I've got a bunch of guided meditations and I embed runes into the music. Even though you can't hear it, the runes are actually in the music using a little bit of a formula I put together. So those guided meditations are there as well as you know, booking appointments for seance work or guided spiritual work. Now, here's a, a little bit of a difficult one. I have a website called Galdra Craft, spelled G-A-L-D-R-A-K-R-A-F-T, it's on this website that you will find the rune work that I do through music, where I create rituals and different ceremonies and different processes with the rune work that really brings it out. You know, Galder as rune magic and craft being power. So it's the power of rune magic, is what you find on the Galder Craft website. So those are like three of the good ways of getting a hold of me. And of course, I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. Just look for my name, Kadric, and I'm everywhere.
0: <laughs> it's the advantage of having a unique name so yes <laughs> that's great uh thank you so much man i really really enjoyed this and i look forward to diving in more and when i get my build up my own experiential my own experiential knowledge and repertoire i'd love to do this again and uh and be able to talk from uh from more personal firsthand knowledge about some of the things that you're you're discussing and dive into the runes myself because I'm, I'm definitely going to do that. Beautiful. I'm up for it. Let me know and I'll be there. All right. Awesome, man. And thank you everybody for tuning in. We love you guys. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into the podcast with Kedrick Olson. I really enjoyed having this conversation with him and diving a little deeper into some of the things that he talked about. So would love to hear your feedback and I look forward to seeing you next week.